Welcome to the podcast, Let's Talk Sped Law, a podcast dedicated to discussing special education rights of children with disabilities. I'm your host and special education attorney, Jeff Forte. Now let's talk Sped Law. Our guest speaker in this episode of Let's Talk Sped Law is Katie Curra. Katie Curra is a speech and language pathologist and founder of Kids Language Center, located in Coscob, Connecticut. In this episode, we go through all of their information regarding speech and language services that are provided under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act as a related service. Together, Katie goes through the clinical importance of understanding expressive and receptive language, of understanding social development and pragmatic language abilities, and also goes through many of the assessments that a parent can be asking a school team to conduct to more fully inform a child's special education and related services by way of speech and language support. We also go through the importance of knowing when a speech and language evaluation is considered comprehensive, as well as how you can best evaluate a child for speech and language services during the time of COVID. Speech and language pathologist, Katie Curra. Welcome to Let's Talk Sped Law. It's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So today we're gonna be uh, really kind of diving into everything there is to know from a parent's perspective about speech and language evaluations. And it's so great that you're on because it's such an important part of child's IEP with many, many different disabilities. And, um, you know, when we're talking about speech and we're talking about language, they're, they're two completely different things. And the language process and understanding how a child is able to communicate expressively, receptively, phonologically, pragmatically is all within your expertise. So, I'm really excited and, and humbled to have you on the show. Uh, you know, I, I want to first start by talking about when is a speech and language evaluation uh, usually required? Under the IDA, it can be obviously used as a related service, and it's also a evaluation that's provided quite frequently by school district-based speech and language evaluators. So as an independent private provider that is often hired by school districts to do an independent speech and language evaluation, but also by parents who just wanna make sure that their district's speech and language evaluations are appropriate. When does a private speech and language evaluator like you typically get involved in a child's education? Um, so I can be called um, initially when the children, when the students are young, right? So maybe perhaps before they're even involved in an IEP process. Um, and then I can guide them, the parents to, um, you know, seeking more, um, you know, an evaluation through the district or more help through the district. If the family and the student already is, already is involved in a district and already has an IEP or, um, you know, the district is aware of some um, concern on the parent's part, 
then oftentimes I get called from a parent uh, with the concern that either a district doesn't see the need in testing um, or has tested and hasn't found anything remarkable. Um, but the parent just really feels that the child is struggling in a specific area or multiple areas. And so in those cases, I bring them in for, um, for an evaluation and we just do, we do a very thorough, comprehensive evaluation, whereas, you know, sometimes initial evaluations through the district might be, um, might be uh, more brief, right? So they look at basic receptive and expressive skills. They look at um, maybe just one articulation battery. Um, our assessments will dive quite deeper into, um, into what other weaknesses might, might be impacting um, academically or socially. So we listen a lot to the parents' concerns and, um, and look at assessments that would target those specific areas of weakness or possible areas of weakness. So you mentioned something that I really wanted to, to highlight for the audience, and that is sometimes there's a brevity, if you will, in a school district-based speech and language evaluation. And, and the brevity could be for a number of reasons. I mean, it could be because the child simply needs to have a, a uh, you know, informal assessment or consultation or the speech and language evaluator is spread thin over the entire district. But um, when I look at evaluations that you have done in the past for, for parents, um, I mean, I have one up right now, and not that page count matters, but yes, you really underscored that it's comprehensive, uh, 35 plus pages of a speech and language evaluation for a child uh, is, is certainly gonna be much more informative than the brevity of a, of a school district-based speech and language evaluation. So let's kind of get into what disabilities that a child may qualify for on an IEP often need speech and language uh, services as a related service and will require an informative speech and language evaluations like the ones that you conduct. Okay. Yes. Um, so 35 pages is probably a lengthier <laughs> evaluation, but points to, in that particular case, points to the need to look into um, many aspects of communication. So not just a receptive language issue or expressive language issue, but how does that child use th uh, those skills to be able to, um, you know, retell a story or have a conversation? Um, you know, in some cases we're looking at articulation and fluency and social language and narrative language and uh, auditory processing. You know, so some some evaluations will be longer than others depending on. Um, what what we need to look into, but in terms of um, in terms of disabilities, we see. I think the speech language pathologists um, at school districts are on most of the cases in special education. So I know from working in a school years ago that if there were sixty kids with an IEP in a building, I was probably on fifty five of those cases because um, there's an underlying language issue 
to most disabilities. So um, autism is a disability that we're certainly called in for um, uh, kids with a um, learning disability where we're often have underlying language issues where we can tap into some phonological processing um, at a fundamental level to help them with their reading. So that would be more of a related service to that disability. Um, and then there are students that their primary disability is speech and language impairment. So then we're certainly involved in writing um, and sometimes, you know, the main person in, involved in writing the IEP um, and informing other staff members on how to include language objectives into academic objectives. Right. So um, one of the things that we try to do in the podcast is empower parents to understand some of the vernacular that's involved with special education law and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And, and you mentioned some words, some buzzwords within speech and language evaluator jargon that um, I'd like to kind of unpack and unbundle. And, and you mentioned receptive language and expressive language and uh, the use of pragmatic functions of language. Uh, could you explain that in the context of you have a family that's going to a IEP meeting and they know that their child has and requires speech and language services, but we wanna help the parents to be able to use the vernacular that we're using so they could hone in more specifically as to what they're, they should be requesting. Okay. Um, okay, so I'm going to try to do my best to start with, um, with the very, very fundamentals of language and work my, my way up, okay? So, um, so when you're looking at a student that has a language issue, it's not really always that they don't have the, the best vocabulary or grammar or um, understanding of a paragraph, right? So sometimes there's something much more fundamental to look at. So we look at, um, we look at phonological processing, which I mentioned before, and that's a student's ability to, to listen and process and remember sound sequences. So if your child is um, speaking and is, is unintelligible, not necessarily because their sound, each sound is not correct, but when they put those sounds together, it's sort of mumbled together. Those students might not under, understand, or might not be aware or have the processing of individual sounds that create language. So that can affect a student's articulation and later a student's reading. Phonological um, awareness really is the knowledge that a student has with putting various sounds together in language itself. Mm -hmm. okay. Phonological awareness and phonological processing are a bit different. So f the buzzword of phonological awareness, will you'll hear kindergarten and first grade teachers talking about rhyming and understanding um, the first what the first sound is of a word, the last sound of a word. Um, phonological processing is a little bit more a little bit more technical and a little bit more basic. So, you know, can the student really listen to say um, a multisyllabic, even a nonsense word and be able to repeat that word? And if they can, you know, given the whatever age they are, but if they can't repeat what they've just heard phonetically, then there's an issue with what their brain is doing after they've heard the sounds. Um, so, 
After that, I guess I would go to auditory processing. So phonological processing is part of auditory processing, but phonological processing is a, you know, a smaller component. So when you hear or you think your, your child just um, doesn't understand what you've said to them, doesn't understand stories, can't remember um, what, you know, how to, can't remember something from a story, um, um, has difficulty repeating information. They are, and of course their hearing would have been tested, but their hearing is, their hearing acuity is fine, but what their brain is doing after they hear um, the words, the phrases, the sentences is not working properly, right? So then you see a decrease in um, their ability to comprehend language as um, the language gets longer and more complicated. So we'll see some kids where we read them a sentence or two sentences, and then that asks them a basic who, what, or where question, and they can't answer it. And that's not necessarily because they don't understand the, the question or they don't understand the information presented. It's possibly much more basic that they just haven't processed it and they need it repeated or reworded. And if you do that and then they can answer it, you know that they understand the language, but their brain is not processing the information you know, quickly or accurately enough. So after that would be receptive language to your question, and that's more of the comprehension, right? So, you know, can, does the student understand basic vocabulary? Does the student understand um, sentences? Can they answer questions about a story? Can they follow a classroom discussion? Um, is it going too, too fast for them, or um, are they just not understanding um, the, the words and the sentences based on, um, you know, like I said, decreased vocabulary um, or, or a decreased understanding of what a WH word means um, or what a concept is. So with receptive language, we look at understanding of basic concepts. So do, does a student understand the words before and after and what that means? That's an example. Any questions so far? Well, so you, you've really gone through a lot as far as what the speech and language pathologist does individually, but you know, it takes a village, right? So it's, it's very often important to have the speech and language pathologist in consultation with the rest of the school team, rather than it being a siloed related service. Can you, can you walk through how you, um, will work with others on a child school team to implement goals and objectives, to implement other related services, to embed speech and language throughout the child's day? Yes, so um, you can embed phonological processing objectives into uh, reading objectives. So um, rather than have a student just read simple words or write simple words, have them really listen to tell you what the individual sounds are, um, repeat, like I said, repeat nonsense words or repeat longer words. So a reading teacher can just incorporate some of those basics within their reading instruction before actually delving into actually um, reading or, or writing. Um, when students are, are young, um, basic concepts such as many, all, um, few, several, those sorts of things can be incorporated into math objectives. Um, and 
comprehension objectives can be incorporated throughout all grade levels within almost all subject areas, including reading and then science and social studies with, with really working with other teachers, getting them to um, understand what types of questions the student can answer, uh, what, what's more difficult, how to phrase things, how to improve their ability to, to, to verbally respond um, to a question. Sometimes um, kids understand the question and understand the information, but they can't get their their words or their sentences out correctly. So working with um, general ed teachers and special ed teachers to scaffold how to make their expressive language work for them in in an academic area. So let's let's switch gears for a moment because we've we've been talking about more of the instruction and the literacy and the reading. Um, component to how important it is to have a speech and language pathologist working with the other team members. But what about the social aspects, the social language and social pragmatic, pragmatic aspects of speech and language services? Yes, and we, we, we evaluate this comprehensively when we do a comprehensive evaluation for kids with language disorders and particularly kids on the autism spectrum. Um, so it's hard, you know, in the younger grades, it's easier to work on these skills, but the, the nuanced needs, uh, or the needs are very nuanced, I should say. So really getting teachers and parents and um, paraprofessionals to buy into um, the importance of some of those nuanced objectives. So, you know, pl playing games are a great way to work on social language, and this doesn't happen really often enough in schools, but, you know, to be able to play a game, to watch somebody else's turn, to make a comment about them, to ask a question during the game, um, you know, those are, those are invaluable, um, you know, activities that can be done. Um, but social language will then if if those early skills and nuanced skills are not worked on when the kids are little, um, those those sort of areas of weakness can then um, come out later when kids are um, trying to have more sophisticated relationships and also write. You know, because sometimes when there's a social language issue, um, students don't understand what information their listener has and what they, their listener doesn't have. So that's a problem in a conversation, right? If, if they're speaking to them about something that they think they have a lot of information about and they're not being specific or the opposite. And so when, so when a student then goes to write about something, they may then not be very specific in their writing because they think their listener knows, um, or they may be overly specific. Um, so it's important to work on those skills at a, at a young age and then continue to make sure that those are embedded into academic areas as well and not just you know, um, it's a fundamental skill. So you don't just teach writing um, through a graphic organizer. You can use social language in terms of, you know, does your listener know what that word means? Um, is this clear to your listener? Does it make sense? That sort of thing. Now, for, for parents that feel that their school district's speech and language evaluator did not provide a comprehensive speech and language evaluation, right? It's, it's kind of a hotly contested issue is when should a parent who cannot otherwise afford to get a private speech and language evaluation, either 
through insurance or not or privately funded, when should they be seeking to have an independent speech and language evaluation? Um, and in your, in your opinion and in your experience, when you're called in, um, what are you looking for in a speech and language evaluation in which the parent can challenge the clinical sufficiency or lack, you know, lack thereof in its comprehensiveness, right? Are there certain, are there certain things and assessments and items and interviews and, and reviews that a parent should know about to say, well, you know what? I know that the speech and language evaluation isn't comprehensive, but I need to be able to put it in terms that the district's going to understand why it is not. Right. So I think the most important thing would be, um, you know, did the assessment, did the evaluation assess the specific areas of concern? So oftentimes I hear parents say, um, you know, they did all of these assessments, but um, they didn't really tap into the area that he's struggling with most, you know, whether it be um, the ability to, you know, formulate, you know, retrieve his words, formulate sentences, write a paragraph, retell an event. Um, those, those skills, you know, sometimes you have to just dive a little deeper there because um, kids can often have the discrete skills independent, you know, they can have the discrete skills intact um, but when they go to apply them to a real life situation or an academic situation, things falter. So one good thing to present to the district is, yes, you did all of this testing, but I still don't understand my child's ability to, you know, X, whatever it might be. Um, so when an evaluation comes to me, I also look to see um, if they've tested in various areas. So they, if a student has a language issue, they can't, you know, only give one assessment that, attests, that tests receptive and expressive language. They have to give numerous assessments um, in, in the varied areas. Otherwise, it's not considered, um, you know, a complete evaluation, right, or comprehensive. So what you're saying is that in speech and language evaluations that, you know, we've seen them where they're just providing one battery of assessment. They're just, they're just applying one tool in which to either qualify or not qualify a child for speech and language service hours. That should be a red flag to a parent that's reviewing that evaluation and wanting to challenge the comprehensiveness of it when uh, only one tool, one assessment is being applied. Yes, that's correct. Um, and also, if there's a glaring issue, so we had a case where we, where we worked, um, where we had some uh, student in, in common, um, and that particular student, um, he, his speech did not sound appropriate. He was going into middle school and his speech was way off, like just sounded very, very atypical. Um, but the school district gave him articulation assessments and he scored perfectly average. Um, but this is a case where you have to go to your district and say, the score is perfectly average. 
but here is a recording of my son and this does not sound typical. <laughs> and everybody around that particular- That's such a good point, right. That's such, I remember that case. It's such a great point, Katie. And, and the, I'm, I'm, I wanna be like a, a stickler on the vernacular. So what you're referring to is actual, uh, the prosody, right? The actual, the actual uh, punctuation and communication of, 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 of verbal speaking. And yes, yeah. So he, yeah, his speech sounded off. So, so your speech can sound off if you don't produce certain sounds correctly, right. if you're disfluent, or if you place stress or intonation in the wrong in the wrong place of a sentence or a word. All of those things can affect, um, you know, the typicality of how you sound. Right. Um, and this 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 student was was struggling socially because he, you know, everybody everybody agreed that his speech did not sound typical, um, but it didn't show any, you know, the testing didn't show anything. So in those cases, we, we have to look into it more deeply to figure out what exactly is, is going on. Right. So parents could bring a recording of their child and say, listen, I understand that you did a, what you feel to be a comprehensive evaluation school team, but listen to this recording. This was just done of my child yesterday. Or here's a list of words that my child cannot um, pronounce correctly uh, when he's home. So mm -hmm. whatever you're providing him or not in school isn't, isn't really generalizing into his or her, uh, you know, speech and language uh, tools. Right. And sometimes, you know, school districts and teachers look so closely at how the, the skills are affecting um, the students' academics. So they sometimes miss, you know, the, the forest through the trees, right? So um, given a graphic organizer, for example, and, and a group discussion and a little bit of help from the teacher and like several edits on a written piece, you know, the student is meeting great expectations. But it's great to be able to record, you know, your child either telling you a story or telling you how to do something or answering a question and bring that in and say, like, this makes no sense, you know? <laughs> Everybody will listen and know that, you know, that's an example of something that's not right. Um, so yeah, bring a recording in um, or bring a, a not, an unedited written piece in um, those, those things I think can be powerful because in many cases, you know, you'll sit around the table and people will look at it or listen to it and say, yeah, that's horrible, <laughs> you know, or it's really not good. Right. Um, you know, and then, then you can have maybe a more honest discussion about how you can help the student. You know, I'm, 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 I'm sure that you've heard this in your experience with working with parents and districts. Oftentimes I will hear a parent call me and say, you know, my speech, my school district speech and language evaluator said that there's really nothing that they can do at this point because my child's lisp or tongue tie is a medical, um, is a medical challenge. And uh, it's not going to be rectified, uh, but for uh, medical intervention or your, your child's uh, facial features and, and body movement is very low toned. And again, that may be because of some underlying medical condition. Um, so therefore, we're gonna provide speech, but it's not necessarily gonna be improving the outcome of your child's 
speech and language abilities. What do you say to a parent that may be faced with something like that? Um, well, I think there are some cases where um, the parent will need to seek medical advice or medical intervention um, before the speech therapy can be as effective as we, we would like it to be. Um, so a hearing impairment, a tongue tie, um, you know, those, those are very specific um, medical needs that need to be addressed, you know, prior or in, you know, in conjunction to therapy. Um, but some other things like, like low tone, um, um, drawing a blank on something else, but like, you know, that's not necessarily something a doctor needs to help with. A speech pathologist is trained to help with, with low tone. And if you work with low tone, then their speech and language will improve. Um, so, um, there, you know, there's a distinction there. Right. Right. Um, you know, one thing we haven't touched based on yet, but it's also at the crossroads of where a speech and language uh, pathologist works in. And that is where a child may be requiring assistive technology mm -hmm. within their IEP. And um, can, can you talk about that? Can you talk, we, we talked about how speech and language evaluators should be working with the special ed teacher, uh, implementing uh, speech services throughout their understanding of assignments and, and reading. We talked about the general ed teacher, but what about AT? How, how can a speech and language pathologist be integrating assistive technology into the SLP recommendations or uh, working collaboratively with an AT related service provider? Okay, right. So I think there are a couple of outside of AT, I mean, I'll get into AT, but I think there are a couple of recommendations that you're sort of touching on at the end of an evaluation. And those are not necessarily, you know, speech, what a speech pathologist is going to do or what a teacher is going to do, but what, what the student might need outside of that. So oftentimes there's a recommendation for a, a consultation with an audiologist because there's, there's more going on than, um, than, uh, you know, the speech pathologist may need more information or there might be more going on than what a speech pathologist could test for or could treat. So um, a consultation with an audiologist to see if um, an FM system or, or an amplification system in the classroom could work. Um, so that's certainly a recommendation that's, that, um, that we make sometimes. Um, to your point about oral motor, um, I just wrote an evaluation where I recommended that the students should see, you know, a dentist or an orthodontist because um, some of the oral structure was impacting his, his speech. That doesn't mean that he shouldn't have speech therapy. It just means in addition to that, can some, you know, can something outside the school um, help, you know, help him. Um, and AT, audiologists can be seen in school, but, um, and school districts have AT evals as well. So that's often a common recommendation to coincide with the um, speech and language therapy. Um, and this could be, there's, there's so many uses for assistive technology, but if, um, 
If you're looking at a student that has minimal expressive language, there should definitely be an assistive technology evaluation to see if there's technology, a computerized device, um, a speech generating device that can speak for the student. If any of those could be helpful in, um, in having the, the child communicate. But sometimes the child is communicating, but an assistive technology device can be used to um, to expand their language. You know, they need the visual, they need the auditory feedback um, in order to really expand and understand, you know, and use language properly. So, um, you know, and then there's assistive technology that can be used, you know, if somebody is having fine motor issues or writing issues or, um, you know, need to, needs auditory books read to them on tape, um, you know, audio books now. <laughs> we used to say books on tape. But um, so those, you know, those specialized areas are important, especially for kids with complex needs, because it takes a really full uh, collaborative team to make the biggest difference. Right, right. Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about uh, cultural sensitivity in the, in the context of perhaps inadvertently over-identifying for speech and language services and where students have English as a second language. Um, can, can you get into where uh, services, speech and language services should be provided um, for a child that, uh, you know, may have a different cultural background um, and the school district is, is, is saying, well, you know what, because English is not their first language, or um, uh, th there's a different uh, culture involved with the family. Um, the child, for cultural reasons, the child's not needing speech and language services. Can you talk a little bit about how um, cultural sensitivity may impact positively or negatively in the outcome of of triggering speech and language support? Yes. So the student, the families that generally come to me are, um, are, you know, families that, that know it's beyond a second language issue. Um, there are a couple of key factors and, you know, one very important one is, is there a language weakness or disability or deficit in, in the other language, the first, the first language, if they're speaking to or if they were taught one first. So if, if they can speak their um, primary language without any um, evidence of a language disorder, then English is probably, you know, just delayed, right? Because they have been learning two languages at the same time. Of course, it's dependent on age and how long they've been exposed. But that's, that's one of the most important factors. So you would want the student tested in their, in, in their primary language. In some cases, you want them tested in both languages to compare. Um, but a, a student with a language disorder will have a language disorder in both languages. Um, the other issue is um, amount of time that the student has been exposed to the second language. So if a student has been in school, for you know preschool kindergarten first second grade third grade you know that's many years of intense exposure to the english language um, so you can only kind of you know 
um, rely on it being a first or second language issue for so long. Right. Um, and in, in one case, I had a family come um, where they had, you know, the, the student had siblings right around the same age, exposed to language for, you know, English for the same amount of time, they were not having trouble and she was, you know, so that's another key factor to look at if you, if you have siblings. So one of the big takeaways there is that if English is your second language, it's important for parents to understand that their child's speech and language evaluation should actually be conducted in the language in which the child predominantly speaks. Mm -hmm. and if this, if the district's evaluator just so happens to not be uh, versed in that language, well, then you may be needing to bring someone in that is that is a speech and language evaluator to implement the evaluations with with fidelity and with comprehensiveness. So that that's a huge takeaway for um, our audience that that has uh, you know diverse cultural backgrounds. So that that's really key. Um, you and in the opposite sense, like I've had, a, I've had families come say they only want to test my, my student in Spanish and they won't allow, you know, for instance, I don't do evaluations in other languages. So, um, so, you know, we want an evaluation, but they won't let us get a private eval unless the evaluator can do a Spanish evaluation. And that was in particular the, the student whose really primary language was English. Like they speak Spanish in the home, but because of his other weaknesses, they were speaking Spanish to him for many years and he's been in school for many years. So, you know, what's practical, um, what makes sense. Right. So we, 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 I kind of want to pivot now a bit and talk about speech and language services in the context of a child that is on the autism spectrum. And uh, I, I can't wait. In a future episode, I'm actually having uh, a board certified behavior analyst on. Um, who talks about the importance of partnering with the SLP with the implementation of ABA-based services and how key it is to work together to implement social pragmatic um, goals and objectives. So can you talk about how you get involved with identifying speech and language services that a child on the autism spectrum requires? Yes, and I think speech pathologists are uniquely trained in that area, right? We're, we're highly trained in understanding how kids and adults understand language, use language, and process language, and then use it for many different functions. Um, so a lot of our focus is on how you use language socially. Um, BCBAs and ABA therapists are, you know, the, the frontline technicians, if you will, right? So they're working with the students more than anybody else in many cases. If the student is, um, is, is uh, you know, impacted in that way on the spectrum, but generally so, um, BCBAs are involved and very prominent. Um, so I think speech and language pathologists can be used for identifying needs, writing objectives that um, that really target social language in a natural, pragmatic way. Um, and then working with BCBAs to get those skills addressed within their ABA program on a regular, intense basis, while keeping it very pragmatic and um, 
you know, uh, ABA services have changed so much over time where it's not, everything's not, um, um, you know, data driven. I mean, it is data driven, but it's not, you know, uh, ABA used to be a lot of times, you know, do this, great, do that, great, what's this, what's that, um, say hi, say bye, you know, like, and digging data on those things, but really, like, they're much more social, their objectives, um, ABA therapist goals are much more social now, so as I mentioned before, playing a game, you know, just going throughout the school, um, using those social language skills in a variety of settings with a variety of people in a variety of, of ways. Um, but I think the speech pathologist is uniquely qualified to assess and write the objectives and work with the BCBA on how best to address them. Right. Yeah. And it's such a great point because social pragmatics is key, especially as children get older. And um, if you're not, if your child's IEP that is on the spectrum does not have, you know, perhaps a word bank that they could rely on when presented, if presented with a, a social situation in which they're not necessarily able to successfully navigate on their own, the speech and language pathologist could work with the BCBA provider to develop that word bank to put that word bank into a context of social situations, right? And then the BCBA can then go ahead and do the data and the observations either within the contrived social situations or just naturally within the school environment. Right. Yeah, and I think to that point, it's it's really helpful when um, ABA therapists and or BCBAs will um, sit in on speech language pathology sessions right? Um, you know, not all the time, not every day or, you know, every session, but um, every discipline works and addresses things differently. And I think I can learn from how a BCBA would address a certain skill and um, that they, you know, they can learn by watching, you know, how we address certain skills in terms of, you know, getting a child to ask a question or make a comment or, um or, um, you know, take turns, whatever it might be. Right. So I think the overlap is extremely important, especially in the social pragmatic area. You know, one of the cliches in, in the IDA world is if it's not on the IEP, it's not happening. And uh, what we're talking about isn't necessarily something that would be on the service hour page, uh, but more in the um, uh, accommodations page where it would you know, say something like that the SLP and BCBA will have a uh, monthly consultation to discuss the child's uh, social pragmatic developments or the social pragmatics uh, implemented throughout the day. So parents should be asking for these things to be specifically put on the IEP, right? Yes. And I think it's really important for the paraprofessional to, um, for that to be written on the IEP, that the instructional assistant or paraprofessional go to not only speech therapy, but whatever um, professional the student is seeing, the instructional assistant should be observing them so that they can implement it in the same way. It's, it's much different to observe than to you know, hear or read what's been done. So again, I mean, the, the instructional assistants and paraprofessionals have, their jobs are really tough. 
Um, and oftentimes they, um, the schedule is such that they're, that when the student is in a, a special service or related service that, that paraprofessional might be taking lunch, um, or assigned to another student or whatever it might be. And I think, I think that that's not in the best interest of, of the, of the team and of the student. So let, let's, uh, let's pivot again and let's now talk about reevaluations, right? So under the IDA, a child by, by law has to be reevaluated for eligibility every three years, the triennial, the infamous triennial evaluation. And um, uh, oftentimes parents may hear, you know, you know, mom, your son has blossomed so well, his speech and language abilities have just flourished that, um, you know what, he doesn't really need the services anymore. Or we're gonna be reducing his services from an hour and a half a week to 30 minutes a week. And this is great, mom and dad, because he's no longer needing these services. What does a parent do if they're still feeling you know, clinically speaking, what does a parent do if they're faced with that as a recommendation? Um, and, and it's going to be pitched to them, obviously, in a way that is successful. But parents might not feel that way if their child is still, uh, if their speech and language abilities is still impeding their ability to get access to education. So how, how do you handle a situation like that when you come in, Katie? So I think that that's when the comprehensive evaluation is most important. Um, so you want to look at not only the, the assessments that maybe the student has already completed, you know, three years prior, you want to see if they've made progress in those areas, especially the areas of weakness. Sometimes we see evaluations where the student three years prior scored particularly low in a certain area. And, and then um, for the triennial, they didn't test that area. Um, they tested other areas and showed that he that the student didn't necessarily need to continue or could decrease services. So I think um, what we discussed earlier in terms of um, requesting that your child be tested in the very specific specific areas that show weakness um, or impacting learning, reading, writing, social skills, um, that those areas are tested and um, and looked at really closely. Um, the, when I attend meetings, oftentimes I'm recommending increased services based on the evaluation results um, or services to begin with. And something that comes back to me a lot is, but the student is meeting their objectives. So they have written an IEP that can be achieved within a year and they've set that sort of boundary for the student and they're saying he's going to meet his objectives given the amount of time that that's left on his IEP and so we don't need more time need more services but it doesn't really make any sense when you're looking at a student that is so significantly behind you know and even if they master their the the IEP in completion by the end of the year they're still going to be so intensely behind um, so I don't, I think it's great if they're meeting their objectives, but um, you know what, uh, I don't see that that is a reason 
to not give them more services. So I know that didn't exactly answer that the, the, your question, the first part did, but it reminded me that this is what I hear very often in meetings and I don't quite understand. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it goes to the whole point of, well, if you disagree with the, with the reduction in services, then that's probably a time where you're at an impasse with the school team. And you could arguably say, well, look, you know, we feel that our child's continuing to need these services and we're at a disagreement. So we're going to be requesting an independent speech and language evaluation to help more fully inform our disagreement. Right. Yeah. I think that that is very important and a good time to, to do it. Right. You know, while we have a little bit of time left, um, can, can you go through some of the common assessment tools that should be in the battery of assessments that are done in a comprehensive evaluation. And we'll put it in the context of a child that, you know, let's say is elementary school um, age and um, is having difficulty with pronunciation and, um, you know, difficulty with, um, you know, the kind of normal flow of speaking um, and, and, and having difficulty with comprehending questions and following commands, right? So what specific type of assessments should the evaluator be conducting with a student that may present with that type of persona? Um, and you said a difficulty with speech production as well, right? Yeah. Um, so with speech production, I like to see what is the underlying cause um, of the issue because the treatment is different. Um, depending on what what the disorder might be and school districts you know aren't really looking for medical diagnoses they're looking for you know an, an academic label um they have a speech and language issue that's affecting their academics and that's it they don't they don't go into what type of um disability it might be or disorder it might be so when i'm looking at speech i want to know if it's a phonological issue or an articulation issue or um or based in, in motor planning. So generally I can get that feel from just listening to the child, um, you know, just in meeting, just listening and doing some preliminary informal assessments. So, um, so you may want to give the Kaufman um, speech praxis test if you're suspecting that there's a motor planning issue or if you're suspecting verbal apraxia, um, or if you're just not sure why the, the sounds are off, you know, the vowels are off, the syllabication is off, you're just not sure, that's, that's a really good assessment to, to give, not only for the diagnosis, but just to get um, more information. Um, from there, you can, um, you can give a, a phonological assessment. Um, so as we spoke up to before, are they processing the, the sounds appropriately to be able to combine them into speech? Um, the CTOP is one comprehensive test of phonological processing. Um, there's a Goldman-Fristow test of articulation if you just want to see what sounds, consonant sounds they have and they don't have. The Kaufman is better for when you're hearing vowel distortions or just inappropriate, um, you know, you're just not quite sure what sounds off, but something is off. The important thing with the Goldman-Fristow is to, is to analyze it specifically. So there's a Con-Lewis um, 
articulatory assessment, I think, um, but we call it the Con Lewis. Um, I forget the rest of the, the name, but um, but that goes into that. That's done with the Goldman Fristo. So you you basically chart their errors and you see what what they are actually doing with their speech that's causing those errors. So are they consistently moving their tongue forward to the front of their mouth rather than where it's supposed to be in the back? Are they um, are they deleting a consonant out of a uh, out of a cluster? So saying stop instead of stop. So those are really important in terms of um, identifying what is actually going on and then treating it most effectively. That's, that's great. I mean, that's, that's such useful information for parents. Um, you know, the, the Kaufman evaluation, the Goldman Fristo, um, the comprehensive receptive and expressive vocabulary test. I mean, the, these are things that if a parent is going down the road of, requiring speech and language services for their son. This is really, you know, an introductory crash course for them, but they can now go and Google these, these, these assessments and get more fully informed on their own. Right. So, right. Um, my last question, uh, Katie is we're in the middle of COVID. Um, schools are about to shut down again, at least in the state that we're in um, and, and go remote. How has, COVID impacted the ability uh, to implement speech and language services remotely? How has it impacted the ability to uh, conduct speech and language evaluations or has it not? And, and how are you getting involved with that? Um, so during the shutdown, uh, March through May, um, Families really weren't seeking evaluations or therapy at that time. Um, I did have a few cases uh, where we were able to complete an evaluation virtually. So there are some um, students and some assessments that can easily be done in that manner. So if you're looking for an evaluation and you're worried about in-person contact, you, you know certainly call a speech pathologist and see what the options are because, um, because uh, a lot can be done virtually. And even if everything can't be done virtually, a lot can. So um, a little bit is better than, than not having the information. Um, in terms of therapy, um, for, for, for my practice, we're doing in-person and virtual. Um, it's trickier for the little kids. So if little kids need remote teaching, um, it ends up being um, a lot of consultation with the parent and instructing the parent on how to help them. Um, so as soon as uh, we were able to safely treat in the office, those young kids started coming in. Um, and we have, you know, tons of precautions in place and I feel it's fairly safe, at least right now. Um, and then um, assessments currently are being done either in person or virtually. Um, mostly in person right now, if we do do another shutdown, um, you know, I, I don't anticipate it, um, you know, closing down to the extent it did in March and April and May. Um, but a lot, you know, a lot can still be done. And so if you're concerned, you, you know, don't wait. <laughs> COVID's lasting a long time. You know, we're going to be in it for a year before it's going to be back to normal. So, um, you know, March, April, May, everybody was kind of hiding out and nervous and everything. But I think um, we can't we can't let things 
go for that for that long for a whole year so so call somebody and figure out what can be done well katie kara thank you so much for being on on the show uh now your website is kidslanguagecenter.com right yes so parents uh if you if you want to learn more about katie and uh you know reach out to her and, and get her services for your child kidslanguagecenter.com it's going to be also in the script notes and in the bio on this uh, thank you for being on the show katie and thank you everyone for listening stay tuned for another episode of let's talk to Men.